Well, hello. We are back for another edition of That 90s Baseball Pod, powered by Access Twins, and I am your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore W-A-R-N-E. And as always, I'm joined by my companion, my compadre, Greg Olson. You can find him on Twitter at G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N-30. Greg, how are we doing today? Good, Brandon. How are you? I'm excited about our upcoming guest. We, uh, we're having a pretty nice little sweet spot of guests here. Uh, you know, we had Jim Poole last week, and before we took our little hiatus, we had Paul Molitor, and now we are welcoming one of uh, one of Greg's teammates for about a hot minute in, in Baltimore there, uh, Mr. Dave Gallagher. Dave, how are we doing? I'm doing good. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Great to have you on, Galley. So, Galley, you were, I don't know if I can call you Galley. I'm going to call you Galley until you tell yes, me you I can. can. Um, you were telling me before we had... Greg on the call that you're involved with a rookie and now I can't even read my own writing here uh, rookie career program is that correct that's correct yeah yeah been doing that for believe it or not 27 years um, about a year after I was out of the game I got a call from the Players Association and they asked me if I would be a resource player um, and they explained the program that every team sends who they think are their top four prospects uh, to, at the time that we started, it was in uh, Lansdowne, Virginia. They've since moved it to Miami. It's for four days. Um, the criteria is that they think that that player will make an impact in the coming year. So I think it's a great idea. I wish they could do it for everybody, uh, but it's mentorship basically. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with playing the game. It's more, Oli would completely understand what I'm about to say. It's rookie players, learning how to deal with veteran players, dealing with umpires, financial planning. Um, and as I've always admired the Players Association, it's not telling people how to live their life. You know, you, have, you tend to want to tell somebody, don't do this, don't do that, but they're grown men. Uh, so you're basically throwing things out there. I tell a lot of true stories and they get to think about it and decide in their own mind how they might react if something similar comes down the road. Uh, I would have loved it if I was a rookie before I, I first stepped into a major league locker. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't available back then. Sounds like, uh, and this is probably a, a good metaphor for you, teach a man to fish and he'll, uh, <laughs> he'll catch his own food. But um, yeah. if people are watching the video, they can see some uh, netting behind you. And you were talking about it off the air too. <laughs> doing, a lot, doing a lot of fishing in South Jersey. Um, yeah, what I mean, what else keeps you busy these days? Because uh, you know, you were also telling Greg that you did some broadcast stuff, but uh, you know, you're out. You're yeah, out I did. And- I, I did. I experienced it. I loved it. Uh, I liked the the um, color commentating more than the pregame and postgame. Um, <laughs> excuse me, but uh, I've kind of I, about two or three years out of the game. Uh, at my home, I had built a batting cage separate from the house. I knew that I would do instruction and, and kind of, you know, be able to earn a little extra money off to the side um, and control my own schedule, be my own boss. I did that for years. And then I actually started uh, Gallagher baseball, did that for a long time and just, um, uh, you know, tried to mentor a lot of people, not just the players, but young coaches that were getting into the game, uh, tried to do things. Uh, I won't say tried. We, we did things right. Like I'm just talking about behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, behavior, respecting the game and, and um, demanding that of the coaches and the parents, uh, to be quite honest with you. 
<clears throat> and then um, the last, I'd say about seven months ago, perfect timing in my life. I sold my house in Central Jersey. I have two homes that are on one lot in Cape May. I do a lot of fishing. I can walk across the street, low tide. Most people fish high tide. I go low tide. I walk out to the farthest dune that is bare. And then I wade out, cast a couple lines in, walk them back, stick the uh, poles in a sand spike. And I like shark fishing. I, I love that feeling of, I've hooked into some that just broke my line. You know, so I'm, I'm not reeling any big ones in. Um, but I've, I've been out there and hooked into a shark and can't even see my feet in the water. That's a really wow. scary, but a, a thrilling kind of a feeling, <laughs> you know, wow. uh, we were throwing a Frisbee, me and my kids were throwing a Frisbee and I had a line in the water and I hook into a shark. I, I know he was feeding and uh, I'm reeling him in towards me and I'm thinking, I don't think it's a good idea to bring him all the way in. And then he, he shook his head, busted my line and the fin went underneath the water. And I, my advice to my kids was don't move. <laughs> It's probably that's probably not the best advice, but you can't run yeah. underwater and get back to the dune, you know. So right. it's just kind of like hopefully he turns and goes to deeper water, which I think he did. <laughs> but um, I do a lot of that. So this this new job I have now, I'm a senior advisor for um, a center court. And that's there's eight affiliates. There's sports development, uh, eight affiliates in the state of New Jersey. Five of them have baseball. And I advise, I'm nobody's boss, right? And I don't have to get a phone call on a Thursday night saying we don't have a catcher uh, for our 14U team on Saturday. Like that's not going to be me anymore. Um, I just basically, <clears throat> I can help uh, mentor the parents, especially the kids that are uh, looking to get into college and uh, help with curriculum of what we're teaching. But I'm, a, I'm around a lot of professional people. And that's not always the case in this, I call it an industry, because that's what it is. Um, but the, the COO is, there's no pressure that he's putting on anybody. The owners of the company own a couple of uh, sports uh, development teams, actually professional team lacrosse, so they get it. And um, I'm proud to be a part of it. And, and it's good for this time in my life. It's not overstressing. That sounds nice. Yeah. Oli, what you got? No, I'll just listen. Really good stuff, Gally. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, still involved with uh, the young players coming up and, and uh, even the, you know, the rookie, the rookie piece is really good. You know, you, uh, I, I mean, I just, you know, going through it and starting on your career, third pick in the 80 draft that you turned yeah, out. Yeah, kind, of, kind of crazy. I, I, um, my story is one that probably would not happen today. Um, I lost my father at 15 years old, a tragic, tragic death. It wasn't something anybody was looking that it was going to lead up to. Uh, it, it just happened. Uh, and the only reason I bring that up is because I was basically lost. You know, mm -hmm. I was lost. I was the youngest of four kids and I was looking for fun. I had no structure. Um, I'm looking for whatever's fun I'm going to do. I had no intentions of going to play in college. Um, I was going to hang out at the beach with the, a couple of my friends that drove cars that were a little bit older than me. And uh, to kind of shorten up the story, my girlfriend, who was now my wife, her father was the one that talked me into just going locally to a junior college around the corner. And I went 
And back then, Oli, I don't know if you remember, they used to have a January and a June draft. And then shortly after that, they dropped the January draft. But I went and uh, played in the fall at, at the Mercer County Community College, which is right in my hometown. And I got picked in the first round uh, in January. It was the third pick overall. And really didn't even know I was going to get drafted. That's what I mean. That would never happen today. Yeah. I had a few people talking to me, asking me questions, and they uh, they picked me. And I had a keg party at my sister's house, which is where I was living. I had all my friends over. I said, I'm thinking I'm going to get a nice signing bonus. And about two or three days later, um, it was the Oakland A's who had drafted me. And a, a gentleman calls me and he said, um, congratulations, we picked you. And then he broke my heart. He said, we're trying to sell the organization. There's a group out of Colorado that's interested. So we're not really signing anybody. And he said, legally, we have to make you an offer. And the minimum that we're allowed to offer is $500. And I, I about choked when he said that. I was thinking that's not even going to cover my keg party. <laughs> I was no. like, no, no. And, and he said, um, if I guess the rules were uh, they had rights to me until two weeks before the June draft. And if they didn't sign me, I become a free agent again. I played in this Juco all-star game and I had like a dream day six for seven. I did everything right. And the backstop was lined with scouts from every team. And afterwards a scout came up to me and said, uh, did you sign, are you going to sign with Oakland? And I said, I haven't heard from him. He said, if you haven't heard from him, you're, you're a free agent. They lost rights to you. Don't worry about it. He said, I think Cleveland's going to draft you. And sure enough, uh, Cleveland then picked me in the first round. Um, and that's kind of what kicked off my career, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kirby Puckett went in the January draft in 82. So it didn't last much longer than that. Uh, do you know who was taken second overall in that June phase that uh, he's still around the game, MLB Network? Really? You're Harold about to Reynolds. tell me. Harold Reynolds. You're kidding. Yeah. So, so it was actually. Um, not a lot of noise in that first round besides you, Reynolds. It was uh, it was pretty quiet. Uh, Mike Mason, left-handed pitcher, played for a while, yeah. and Ron Romanic, Jeff Dedman. Yeah. Not a lot of guys who hung around for a while. So it was you and and Harold Reynolds. So that was that was pretty neat. And, and actually, yeah, it only took my steam there. I was going to ask about going twice in the span of six months. That's probably something that. Uh, First round in, in twice in the span of six months, you're probably you can say that in very few others. Well, I, I think that's pretty cool. And I do tell people that as much as I possibly can. <laughs> as much as I possibly can. I remember the guy from Oakland. His name was Norm Koselke, and he said he was Charlie Finley's nephew. He's the oh, person geez. who called me. Yeah, that's that's my age there, right? But he said to me, We look at you as a Bobby Mercer type, which come on, like I would take that in a heartbeat. Yeah, but he they had met my older brother at a game. My older brother was always like he's six three and he was so naturally strong. He's a bull. And I think they always projected me to look like him eventually. I never did. I stopped at six foot, never had his strength. Um, but I always tease him and say, you know, I probably should give you something of what I've made. <laughs> you know, but um, yeah, I. I being compared, I think they always viewed me as a guy that might hit 15 to 20 home runs. And I never really became that guy. 
Um, but I love the comparison. That was oh, pretty, that was pretty yeah, good for me. For sure. I, I have to ask you though. So you go through all that time coming up in the Cleveland system and you only get, it's kind of funny. You're drinking, I think a cup of coffee. Now you get, um, <laughs> you get 15 games with them. Yeah. And that's it. And then by that time that you get to the big leagues next, you're no longer in the organization, but you came up with uh, the names I kept seeing were Rich Thompson, Mike Jeffcoat, kind of the guys that were in that rung of yeah. the ladder with you. Was it strange to come up and then not really make a, uh, a, your first statement with the team that drafted you, you know, you were there for a long time. Yeah. I mean, you were in Maine for three years for crying out loud. Oh uh, yeah. It, it was heartbreaking for me, but I, you know, in this day and age, I feel like, and I hope this makes some sense. I feel like nobody ever wants to take responsibility. It's always just too easy to point the finger at somebody else for a reason. Mm-hmm. Things happen. This one's pointed directly at me. Um, they gave me every opportunity and look, bottom line is I can look in the mirror and look at myself and look back at my career and say, I was on the field with so many players who were much more talented, but if it wasn't that for me, if I didn't see that, I don't know if I would have pushed myself and worked as hard, which I had to do. Mm -hmm. I had to make up for huge gaps in talent on every uh, phase of the game. So we were talking a little earlier, uh, Brandon, before we went on the air here, and I was explaining that they gave me an opportunity. Brett Butler, I think he got hit by a pitch and broke his hand or his thumb, and I got called up. They gave me an opportunity to start, and I failed miserably. And I can honestly say from day one, I was playing not to fail. I was playing not to fail. I remember saying to myself, if I just hit a ground out to short, that's okay. I see people do it all the time. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was four for 36. By the way, that's on my baseball card. I see I it on my get, screen right here. I have it on I my screen. I can't get it off of there. It's, that's a 111 bat now. That's how well I know that. Um, and then they, this is what was heartbreaking, is they traded me after they sent me down. And that, I kind of like, I was miffed. You know, they spent so much time develop, developing me. Um, wouldn't they understand that sometimes you don't succeed your first time up? Mm-hmm. Some of the best players in the game, Willie Mays, I, I know, was like that. Yep. Mike Trout was like that, where he come up and they struggled. And then it's experience. How you respond to that failure will make or break you as a, a competitive athlete. But um, they traded me to Seattle. And uh, I actually walked away from the game. I, I, I uh, notified Seattle uh, that I was giving myself until uh, August 15th to make it to the big leagues. And it wasn't a threat. It was, you know, that's the date I'm giving myself. It doesn't happen. I'm done. I'm going to retire from baseball and I'm going to move on with my life. And a lot of people said, well, why didn't you just finish out the minor league seasons two weeks longer? I didn't want to be a September call up. I know that sounds weird, but three outfielders in the organization had been called up from AAA during the year while I was there. That makes me fourth in line. Right. So I wanted the pressure on myself to make it and earn it or go home and let's, let's get on with your life. And uh, I was out of the game and I got signed by the white Sox to condense this. Um, they brought me to spring training as a non-roster player. And uh, if you guys remember Jim Fergosi, he was the manager of the white Sox. Mm-hmm. And on day one, I walked into his office and I said, can you do me a favor? Bring me to every single game that you guys have as only knows veteran players don't like to make trips. They take, 
take some extra BP or a pitcher throw aside and go golf. I said, I'll make every trip, even if you don't use me in the game, this is my last shot. And his response was, I can't promise you that. Everybody would want that. To which I said, but I'm the only one asking. And he, he smiled and he said, I will promise you that I'll pay attention to everything you do. And I had the best spring of my life. Almost made the team. He called me in with three days left and said, I need you to go to AAA. We're trying to trade uh, Gary Reedus, uh-huh. a great guy. And they were trying to get some value out of Gary. Uh, and they de- never did trade him. Um, so I went down for about a month. Uh, and I got called up and then stuck around for a good part of nine years. Well, I can see why you uh, you got called up because you went down there and hit 336 in the span of about a month. So um, I think you kind of answered my next question. I, I feel like I'm stepping on only here a little bit. But when you play like that and you're playing that nervous or whatever you want to call it, that last day when you're sent down, you're like, <laughs> yeah, I'm never going back up again. This is it. I won't get a chance. I always wonder about that mentality because – you have to play the game with the idea that you will be back. But in the back of your mind, you have to be thinking like, oh, well, this might be it. And I think you kind of answered that already. But am, am I getting kind of close there? Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how frustrating the rest of my life would have been? Yeah. If I never worked my way back. Mm-hmm. I might have even resented the game because and that would be a shame because I love the game to this day. Not everybody does. Only knows that. There are players that when they're done, they're done or they'll come back and give it a shot to manage in the minor leagues and they hate it and they just disappear. I love the game. I'm not going to say that I love everything about today's game and certainly don't want to sound like that old guy that, you know, everything was better during our time. It (laughs) certainly was not. Uh, But there are but there are certain parts. I don't think I'm a major leaguer in today's game. I, I just the little things that I had to do in defending instead of looking at it like a a card to tell me where to stand. I I wanted information. I wanted to know who was pitching. Did they have good command? I could see how the catcher was setting up the hitter. I know the count. I know if the hitter has been struggling is maybe his bats dragging. There was so much information I could use that benefited me. And it helped me have an edge, even over your own teammates to try to get in the starting lineup. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that has disappeared. You can't break up a double play. I needed right. to break up a double play. I, 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 I couldn't peel off on a play at the plate. There's two of my baseball cards that have me trying to run over the catcher. Two of them from one year, baseball card is the picture. Both times the catcher held on to the ball. But when you're coming back to the dugout, your team is meeting you on the top step. They appreciate the effort. None of that even appears in a game today. And yeah. I know, I guess it's probably because uh, salaries are so high, you just can't have a guy getting hurt. I understand yeah. it. I understand it, but I don't know if I ever break through. Th- those were some ingredients that I needed, mm-hmm. uh, again, to make up some of those gaps. Yeah, I know? think Buster Posey kind of ended that with what. The- yeah. And then I, before I give it back to Ole, I got to just give you credit. You finished fifth at Rookie of the Year the next year. I mean, that is really impressive that you go from being out of the game or mentally potentially out of the game to fifth and Rookie of the Year next year. You deserve a lot of credit for that. Appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I, I've story for everything. So <laughs> I'll tell you a quick one here that about a month into the season, I was hitting over 300. I'm with the White Sox. Fergosi was my manager who I really liked. Had him twice. I had him uh, my last year at the Phillies too. Yep. Um, the hitting coach comes up to me one day. We're hitting early. 
uh, I think we were in California in a dusty batting cage outside of right field at the time. And uh, we sat down before I even jumped in a cage. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. But if you tell anybody that I said this, I'm going to call you a liar. He said, I could get fired over this. He said, they don't think you can do it. And he wasn't smiling. And think about me, my mindset. I'm hitting over 300. I finally have made it all these years in the minor leagues. And yet he's telling me it's not good enough that in the meetings, they're looking for somebody else. They don't think you can sustain this. I know I, I love the guy because he told me, I think he knew I could handle it mentally. And he also knew that it'll be incentive for me to have to continue to work hard, which was never a problem for me. Um, And I ended up hitting over 300. So I, I sustained it. I didn't give them the opportunity to send me out. And um, an enormous amount of pressure to live with when you're trying to raise your family like this, but it is what it is. Without it, I don't know if I could have made it. Oli, I got I to gotta, uh, ask you a question. Yeah. To see if you remember this. So Oli knows that I, I, you know, a little bit of a clown. I think was another part of who I had to be as a player. Um, I had to make people laugh to, to uh, make up for that gap again. So the first day I'm in Baltimore and I come in and uh, that's never a comfortable thing. You don't know everybody. And I look, I'm at my locker. I look over and you were doing a New York Times crossword with Jeff Ballard. Yeah, and I, I, this. I ended up going to the men's room, but on my way back, I looked over your shoulder and I looked at words that you didn't have. And one of them was, I want to say it was like an Italian author of you know, turn of the century or something like that. And I counted the letters and I went back to my locker and I said, hey, are you guys doing the Times crossword? <laughs> and both of you looked up and you were serious about it. So was Jeff, like serious about getting that thing done. And uh, I said, did you get the Italian author yet? And both of you said, no, no. Did you get it? And I said, yes, Baldini. And I can't remember if you had the pen or he did, but you wrote it in and it was pen. It wasn't pencil. Oh, yeah, we never never did pencil. Yes. And then you both realized simultaneously that none of the other words were fitting up or down. And you both were so pissed at me. (laughs) He looked at me and said, are you kidding me? And that was like your first impression of this new guy is he messed with us on a crossword puzzle. I uh, never forgot that. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, the, be- the better part was it took us about 15 minutes of going. Yes. Oh, believe me, I'm sitting over there. And I, I'm thinking, you know what? I, I know this is this. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. That, and then it's like, and then a couple more minutes go by and then Ballard, you know, going to Stanford, he's like, oh, you know, pretty sure this is, and it was just like looking over at you going, all right. Yeah. I and, mean, and just, that, just that, wadded it up and yes, threw it away. And it's like, we're done. You did. And you were both mad at me. And I think what's funniest about that is you're right. Ballard being a Stanford guy just took an answer from a guy that went to a local JUCO. <laughs> <laughs> but there is another one that I know uh, you're going to remember. So the one year I go there in Baltimore in 90, it gets to the off season. And Cal calls me and says, hey, Gally, you want to come over? Like, we get together a couple times a week and, you know, we play street hockey. And I went, street hockey? And I said, I don't have a stick. And he goes, I got everything here. And I felt like, man, they play street hockey? So I go and, and uh, Cal gives me a stick. He gives me tape to tape it up. He says, oh, you can't wear those shoes. They have black soles because he had that gigantic NBA-sized basketball court. 
and he had shoes in every size. He said, go get a pair. It's got white soles. But you were playing goalie. And I remember thinking like, man, Ole's got a lot of courage here because they're, they're firing that ball, that street hockey ball at you. And one day you just got smoked. You took it off the chest to save it from going in the net. But it had to hurt. And you just dropped everything and said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. But uh, that people need to know. That's Cal and Billy. How competitive were they? Oh, they were man. crazy. It was Basketball, every, everything. We would. I mean, before he built his gym, so, we, you know, going through it and, and you, you know, you played with both those guys. Before they built the gym, we were at Memorial Stadium. And so our workouts were down at Memorial Stadium. Well, we would do our lift and then play the street hockey game in the visitor's clubhouse, which is – I mean, it's a brand of hockey that you can never imagine because you got guys pushed into lockers. You got just <laughs> no room for anybody. And you've got eight guys, eight major league players in right. this little room slamming each other. And it, it's, it was street – it was nasty. And it was just – that was Cal. That was Billy. It was – everything was a game. Finally, right. Cal builds its gym. So, you know, now we can play street hockey in the gym or basketball and – only good thing was, yeah, everybody knew their place and, and nobody was going after people on layups. It was, just, it was right. contained, but it was still so competitive. Um, I Physical. forgot about street hockey. Golly. Yeah, I got right? I, I remember thinking when I hung up the phone, I thought street hockey. I oh, felt yeah. like, I, man, I feel like I'm 15 again, you know, but um, I wonder like, would they even allow that in today's contracts? You know, they would never allow that kind of thing that we were doing. Well, we did. Uh, I mean, we didn't talk. I didn't talk about it with Billy, but we went like 91, I think, went skiing with all the wives and the Ripken brothers and that. And, you know, so we're snowmobiling because we couldn't <laughs> ski. And probably that week, Carney Lansford drives his snowmobile into a barbed wire fence and he was out for the year. Wow. All of a sudden, that would be the last snowmobiling that Major League Baseball right. will do legally without losing their contract. It was just, I mean, the Ripken brothers were far none. Any yeah. game that we could play in a clubhouse, tape ball. Yeah. It was nuts. Yeah. That's a, that's a side that um, people don't get to see. But uh, I look how vivid those memories are for me, which shows you what was really important for me. I mean, <laughs> I, the game itself, and you might have a completely different experience uh, being who you are and the success that you had. But the game for me, and I'm saying that word purposely, game, it changed when I signed professionally. It, it was still a game between the lines that I enjoyed, kind of like when I was a high school player, being part of a state championship team in, in high school. Like, man, these are guys I hang out with. But it became a def definitely a different definition as a professional for me, because it took on an enormous amount of pressure um, because this was how I was raising my family. And, uh, you know, as you know, from the pitching side for a hitter, you go three or four games in a row without a hit. And you're, you know, I, I was a starter for about four or five years. And then I was a role player for the rest of my career and three or four games without a hit you might start reading about yourself in the local paper, which I did, you know, the candidates to be sent down when so-and-so gets called up and I'd see my name in there. And then 
I'm expected yeah. to go. I'm starting in center field that night. <laughs> like, how the hell am I going to perform when I got this over my head? And I would never discuss that with my wife because number one, she, she never liked the game of baseball, doesn't understand the rules, which worked for me because I could come home and separate. Um, but I would never have that conversation because I thought, why would I want her to feel the same stress that I'm feeling? Um, but I don't know if you had that same experience. I always loved the game between the lines, but outside the lines was a complete different ball game for me. Well, you're mentoring these young rookies coming in. I hope you're telling them not to read the papers or the yeah. inner get you know stay off Twitter and everything else because it's just yeah yeah uh, it dub it doubles the pressure when you start seeing it outside of the game you already know what you got you know you already know that you haven't gotten a hit I already know that I've blown two two games in a row I already know that I I have all this information but then when you start you know reading stuff outside the lines it almost doubles everything it really does and it was uh I, you know, my, my rookie year was kind of one of those where just I was in a cloud and, and that's what it was. And I got dinged up the next year a little bit and it still was kind of the same thing. But once I started reading or hearing a little bit and the blown save really started to become a, a prevalent stat, um, right. it became a conscious thought of, you know, it still is fine if I come in with a run, run lead and we leave and we're tied. You know, the game's not over with, the game's still on. Yeah, we we could have we could have won right now, but it's you know, I kept it to this. And then all of a sudden the blown save comes in and becomes well, that's not mm. acceptable either. Right. Uh, and so yeah, you start you start pressuring yourself a little bit and the game's you're right. Once you once you get into that certain level and it becomes a stress of not being there, not staying there, going down, it um it becomes really stressful on a day-to-day basis. And I, I remember you, I know I didn't spend a lot of time with you as a teammate, um, but I remember you in your career, what I can visualize in my head, similar to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, as far as how you handled uh, frustration or failure. Like for me, I, I tried not to show it. I would push it in, push it down. And um, I don't know if that's the healthiest thing to do because there's only so much that I could push down and act as if it's not happening and hide from the camera, hide from my teammates, hide from everybody. Um, it's probably healthier to explode once in a while and get it out. And I kind of picture you as a guy that you could see it on your face. If you, if you knew Oli, you could see, oh, he's not happy. But I don't remember you as a guy that would slam stuff and um, I think it's an interesting topic for for athletes in general of all sports, especially like the best thing we can do right now is what we're doing, talking about what we experience so that they can live it through us and, and decide maybe how to handle it better. Um, that's always been a difficult topic for me is, you know, you want kids to be able to express how they feel um, and not hold it in. But being involved in amateur baseball for so long now, I mean, 20 some years, the biggest thing that's jumping out for me is the older kids, especially the high school age kids are getting they're getting migraine headaches more than I've ever seen. And I think it's something I think it has to do with the social media and rankings and the pressure of um, I'm not hearing from a school. It's um, 
Mm. Parents, I think, feel that pressure because their kids have become investments. They spend a lot of money in training and, um, and it's an indirect pressure that's going back to the kids, you know? And, uh, I mean, how did you handle, I'm here, I'm, I'm doing the interviewing, right? But how did you (laughs) handle, how did you handle failure? Like what's your best advice to kids and all? Um, honestly, when, you know, going through it and analyzing and, and talking to people, um, and I, I spent a year, uh, the Orioles gave me somebody to talk to on the side just because I started putting limitations, fences, um, in situations I'd walk in and I was unsuccessful in Toronto on day games with Dale Ford umpiring. And then I'd come walking in and, and. I automatically was like, I'm, I'm, I'm screwed, you know? And so I I spent some time talking to a guy just trying to get that system out of my head. However, it got started, but I'm, you know, I'm listening to what you're saying and I never exploded in public. I, I would go find, I would go into the bat room and mistakenly hit a, you know, against the brick wall and and take a wooden bat and, and, you know, sting the crap out of my hands. But, I would take it out there um, and I, I found ways to take it out and never, you know, do it in the clubhouse where, you know, I had a teammate that broke every light in the training room. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I understand you're upset, but now nobody can go in there, you know, right. or, and I was, I, you know, I mean, saw some, saw some epic snaps when I was with the Dodgers and, and it was Kevin Brown. It was like, Ooh, wow, that was really good one. and I, you know, I was fine. I really, I was fine with it. I was just, I wasn't going to do it in the dugout. I wasn't going to throw the Gatorade cooler because I blew a save because right. nobody needs to see it. So, yeah. what you know, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, listening to the, you know, with, with the kids. I had, um, my issues were, I, I had such a fear of failure mm. that it cycled up and drove me so hard never to lose the game that, um I mean, it was painful when I lost. I knew I knew the repercussions of, of what I was going to deal with for 24 or 48 hours right. was going to be uh, utter misery. Right. So that was the, my propelling factor was that if I lose, I'm going to be so miserable that it's it's not worth. And, you know, I ended up finding ways to dial up things that I can't explain. But, um, you know, what you talked about with the kids I can't imagine, you know, the rankings, the pressure that is going on with these these high school kids that, you know, have invested all this time and money. Their parents have the pressure that they're dealing with to, you know, function inside the lines. Yeah, the the conversations only in the dugout are and I don't blame the kids. I blame us, meaning the adults, right? The that we're the ones that are supposed to be setting up an atmosphere that's healthy for them. I mean, it wouldn't take you more than five minutes to watch a a player, an amateur player on a field and know whether you, you should probably watch him some more just by his movements, right? You've seen it your whole professional life, what it looks like. It doesn't take much, but the kids and the parents are raised in an atmosphere where it's not that. They don't even realize that it's not in their mind. It's not that it's more about if I go to certain showcases and certain tournaments and I get ranked, if I don't get ranked, I have no chance. And that's how they're being marketed to. Um, It's, it's really sad because I don't remember ever 
feeling like that. And yet I played in the big league. So somehow I got discovered, right? Um, I told you my story. I, I didn't go to one showcase. I didn't play travel. They didn't have it. Well, we didn't have travel. Body. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good. I mean, there's a lot of good to it. I don't want to say it's all bad, but there's certain things that we have to fix uh, for these kids. It's causing way too much stress that I see. You know, I mean, it's the game's not fun. These kids can't be having fun. And then, you know, now I'm looking at Brandon going, Brandon. It doesn't create baseball players. It creates no. robots. I know, but I'm just, I'm just going, you know, I, I know how you are and you have, you have this galley. He has this full page of notes. Right. And it's like right now he, he's just crossing stuff <laughs> off going. Um, no, no, we're good. I, this is, I'd rather yeah. have organic conversation because yeah. I like to adapt. Like we're talking about with players here. If you create robots, then it's not a fun game. Yeah. It's just they're no. going through the motions. This is a great conversation. Um, it really is. I'm just sitting there going, if they're not having the time of their lives playing high school or when they get to college, it was the same thing with me. It was about the camaraderie yeah. and the competition and whatever happened after this, great. Now I'm sitting there looking at it going, they're so concerned with stat line. You're seeing that in travel ball where nobody lays down a bunt. Nobody hits a ground ball to second base with a runner on second. Nobody does the little things because they don't help the stat line. Oli, would you believe that the, the advice to kids at a showcase is when they're throwing a ball in from the outfield, don't worry about hitting the cutoff, man. Throw it as hard as you can. They're getting a reading on the velocity coming out of your hand. Now, I spent years telling our players that as you get older, pitchers get better. Defense gets better. You have to keep a double play in order because the pitcher can get a ground ball and the infielders can turn a double play. You sailing it over the cutoff, man, you're not going to be out there unless you can you can hit so many bombs that they'll, they'll look past it. So my point is this. That's how they're being raised. It's yeah. it's not their fault. Oh, really I, don't, I, don't blame, I, I don't blame them. I really don't. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I just I'm just saying we somehow have the only sport where the trend traveled up. Right. We're watching major league baseball guys. Don't hit cutoff man's guys. Don't hit yeah, ball the other true. way. It, our, our trend traveled up. And I don't think all these guys that are playing in the big leagues now did all this in travel ball, but right. it sure looks like they did and they have never mm -hmm. gotten corrected. It's never gotten changed. Um, and the only time it, it switches back into normal baseball mode is when the playoffs, because wow, we need to win. You gotta win a game. Yeah. I don't I care think, if I'm over, if I'm over four and I hit two ground balls to second base with a runner on second and he comes in to score. I had a good day in the playoffs. Right. But in the right. regular season, I, I ain't doing that. I gotta swing away and pop up and right. leave right. him to second base. I, I think with the right. kids too, you have to emphasize play baseball. This sounds like a job, you know. Who's gonna have fun go? I mean, you can play a hundred games in a year as a kid, but you're not playing. It's a it's a job. If you you need to learn how to play the game. <laughs> and learn the ins and outs of it. Yeah. And then you start doing the things like, uh, you know, if you hit the cutoff, man, then you can see how hard you can throw and how hard you can throw should come up when a guy's trying to go first to third on you from right field. You know what I mean? Like that, that's where you should show how hard you can throw. It doesn't matter if you're reeling in a routine up the middle diamond cutter, 20 hopper up the middle. Uh, it just, to me, let the game teach you when you learn the game and they're just not doing that. 
No, I'm, I mean, you know, these kids actually sit there and think that we don't recognize a good arm from the outfield and I need a radar gun. No, not at all. I can, I can watch a team play catch and go, nope, they got no yep, chance. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't want to take away from this if, if there's more meat on the bone, but at the same time, too, I do want to I ask wanna, about. I want to, I want to get to Galley's, you know, Galley was a clubhouse guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was a clubhouse guy. I loved the interactions. Give me, give me your favorite baseball story. And then I'll let Brandon start getting into his notes before he runs out of time. Yeah. We're going to run out of time. You're pretty fast. All right. I'll give you a quick one because you know, the guy, uh, he's since passed away. Rest in peace. Jeff McKnight. You remember Jeff? Yeah. I didn't yeah. realize he passed. Oh yeah. yeah a while ago, Oli. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's starting to happen a lot. But um, anyway, so he he comes over to the Mets and I'm with the Mets and he comes in the clubhouse and uh, he's it's right. It's before we even go on the field, take batting practice pregame. So I purposely we're, we're in. Um, was it? The, yeah, it was the Mets. Where the heck were we at? I can't remember where we were at. Minnesota, I believe. Uh, if that makes any sense, because I don't know. If, uh, anyway, wherever we were at, I walk and I go past him and I go to the player next to him and another player on the other side of him. And I said, are you guys going on the whale watch tomorrow? I'm not looking at McKnight. Purposely, I'm not looking at him. But I already told the other guys and they said, yeah, what time? I said, we're meeting down in the lobby at 5 a.m. And I said, uh, you know, they give you ponchos, the, you know, the whales splash water over the side of the boat. It's going to be awesome. Then we'll grab breakfast and we'll come back and we could get some sleep before we go to the ballpark. And then almost last second, I turned to Jeff and I said, oh, did you want to go on a whale watch? And he just he wants to belong with the team. So he says, yeah, yeah, definitely. I said, all right, we're, we're meeting down in the lobby at 5 a.m. He goes, I'll be there. So when we got back to the hotel, I asked, like, who's working through the night? You know, who's working? And the girl happened to say, yeah, I'm, I'm here all night. I'm here in the morning. And I said, do me a favor. Uh, you got to let me know tomorrow if there's a guy sitting in the lobby at like quarter to, <laughs> quarter to five. And then I told the players, anyone that was near him, put a lock on your phone. Because that's the first thing he's going to do when he finds out he's been had. He's going to try to wake us up with our phones, you know. And when we got to the ballpark the next day, he was waiting for me to ask. And I said, did you go down there? And he goes, no. But I asked that girl. He was there. It was just, the, to me, it was awesome. Like, I like doing that. I like to have my fun. Of course, you know, when a game started, I, uh, I, I couldn't afford not to pay attention and, uh, and give it everything I had. But that was, that was important for me to enjoy being in the locker room, like you said, the camaraderie. You, dude, you had to have been in San Francisco. I mean, there are no whales in Minnesota. <laughs> I'm in yeah. Minnesota. I'm in Minnesota. I can tell you there are no. There are no whales. It had to be, it it had to be Seattle. I mean, with, with the Mets, it had to be San Francisco. Yeah, Could have been Seattle. It had, to be, it had to be the Mets. Um, and I was thinking Seattle, but why would the Mets be playing? I don't think they played interdivision. No, we didn't have interleague until 94. 97. Yeah. Was it 97? Yeah, 97. Uh, I've got yes. the wild card then in 95. Yeah, 94 and 95. Yeah, there's also the wild card in 94. And yeah, then. dude, yeah. it had to have been, it had to have been San Francisco. It, it must have been. Yeah. But yeah, you know what? I came down, I came down in Oakland one morning and Mickey Weston was sitting down there. I was going golfing at six. 
Yeah. And I come down and Mickey Weston sitting in the lobby and he was like waiting on somebody to go whale watching. I just kind of <laughs> like, it was my best game face. I was just like, Oh man, yeah. that's awesome. I went on that last year, dude, you know, and I, 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 I might've kept him there another 30 minutes by my yeah. just selling the whale watching story. I that, thought that, that's I thought around. the joke. I thought the joke was watching whales in Minnesota, so I just let it go. See, I, I kept my game face on yeah. while you were telling the story because I mean if people are watching the YouTube video, yeah, I, oh, I kept my face on because I'm like a whale watch in Minnesota, that should already tip off this guy. Yeah. That I thought that was the joke. Standard rookie West Coast trip. Right. Whale watching at 5 a.m. It's just like <laughs> Man, I like the good. fact that I, I threw in that you get a free poncho with the trip. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's a difference maker. <laughs> uh, how, quick, how quickly do you have to jump off this call? Because we don't want to keep you too long. Yeah, I can go right to five up. Five up? Okay. We got, um, 10 minutes. we got another 10 minutes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about finally getting your chance in Chicago. I, you did say you had to go down for a while. But that outfield, too, um, remarkably productive. You know, Dan Pasqua had a, a pretty nice season. Yvonne Calderon, uh, Calderon, um, you said Gary Reedus didn't get traded. He had a pretty nice year. Even Daryl Boston popped 15 homers. And then um, Harold Baines, who was the DH, but an outfielder by trade. I mean, almost yeah. all of your guys' production outside of Carlton Fisk came from outfielders. What was it like to be part of that group and to finally get your shot a year later after being feeling like it could be over for you? Yeah, uh, Harold basically he never played the outfield at that point. He was DH, right, and, what, right. uh, and I think Ole knows him too. That what a great guy! Oh man, um, one of my favorite guys of all time uh, as a teammate. Um, Sammy was just coming up, and believe it or not, this tells you about my career. Sammy had a great arm, but never hit the cutoff man early on. And he, <laughs> he'd fire a seed to try to get a guy going from first to third. And he'd be in the corner at right field and short hop the third baseman and bounce up into the stands and everybody move up. And in my mind, I'm thinking <clears throat> they're going to send him down. And that's what happened is like, he kept going up and down. Um, and it kind of, it helped me stay. It basically helped me stay just by being fundamentally sound. Yep. And another funny one, because a guy had a long, great career and another really nice guy, Lance Johnson Yep. in spring training. I, I remember him being in the outfield and breaking in a brand new glove, but it was in the games and a couple balls popped out of his glove. And I remember thinking, how does he not know to, to break that in during batting practice? But, yeah. but I hate to say it, but I'm not going to tell him. He's 24 at he, this point. Yeah. If he makes it, if he makes it, I'm probably not going to make it. Yeah. And, um, I just like isn't that weird. That's the true life of a guy that was in my position is like, I can't even be a good teammate to some guys because I need to make this team. Well, cold you degrees, know? cold degrees. Somebody pitched. had to kill him. Yeah. He, he pinned, so my, my guy pitched in the minor leagues for the twins and then in the big leagues for a minute, but he said, it's so hard in the minors because you have teammates, but they're also kind of your adversaries. You know, the other starting pitchers are all battling you for a call up and it, it's so strange. Like they're like, you don't want to win and make it to the playoffs because you don't get paid for those games and you don't want to really be close to your teammates because they're competition. That early part of guys' careers sounds like just kind of like a mental block of like, that's it not is. how we play the game. It's so strange. Yeah. So picture, picture this, the guy, this is a true story and I'll leave the names out. It's not a bad thing. The hitter is a guy that needs RBIs. Okay? He's a slug. He doesn't run well, but he, he has to hit home runs and drive in runs. 
runner on third, and the pitch is in the dirt, and it goes almost to the backstop. He immediately holds his hand up to hold the runner at third. Why? Because the next pitch, he hit a sack fly. He got an RBI out of that. He did not want that guy to score because that would have just been an 0 for 1 and a, and a fly out. And I remember, like, I caught things like that in my mind. And I don't even blame the hitter. It's just so strange. But I will say this. I learned the hard way that, you know, rooting against your own teammates is such a negative energy that I was doing it. I was like, the other outfielders, you know, hope he makes. I'm, I'm talking about A, double A. And then I had to, I had to change. It was a negative energy and it was draining me. And when I finally changed, nobody told me to do it. I just figured it out. When I legitimately pulled for my teammates, every one of them, and the handshake was real, I started to play my best baseball. Mm. And so there's something to that. Good stuff. Yeah. Very good. There's no question about it. Um, You played for some really interesting managers too. You said Jim Pergosi twice, Jeff Torborg twice. Bobby Cox, Frank Robinson. I mean, what was your relationship like with those guys? I take pride in the fact, and somebody brought this up to me, that that Jim had me in uh, Chicago and then signed me, had me signed or was part of it um, in Philadelphia years later. He had a choice at that point. Yeah. Jeff Torborg had me in Chicago. Then when he became the manager of the Mets, he, he got me. And Marcel Latchman was a pitching coach for the Angels. And then when he was the manager, he got me. That's three guys. It made me feel like, look, they know what my role is on a successful team, on a talented team. And they saw a place for me. Um, And that made me feel pretty good about just who I was as a person and and behavior as a professional kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I, I take pride in that. Wow. No, that's, I mean, dude, you were, you were, you were a great clubhouse guy. You, you did your job. You played hard. You, you know, we knew what you, we had when you were out there. So it was a comfort yeah. level of like, you know, he's a professional. He's not going to, he's not going to screw around. He's not going to screw up. He's going to get the job done. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, how long were you with us in 90? What, it months? wasn't long. I, I think I got there in August um, and yeah. it was off the it was off the heels of me pushing back on the White Sox uh, rookie pay for performance contract that uh, Jerry Reinsdorf was offering, and it became public. I actually, um, through the Players Association, I filed a grievance, and and we went to war over this thing. And I knew when I did that, I'm gone. So yeah. the day that they put me on waivers, I was batting 280 exactly. I was actually having a good solid year. Um, and they put me on waivers and the Orioles picked me up. And I was thinking I might get blackballed from the game. I sat with Roland Heeman, uh, Oli, and I, I asked him point blank, one-on-one in his office, am I getting blackballed from the game? And I'm looking at his eyes. I'm trying to read like where, you know, is he going to just give me, he was an honest man. Yeah. And he, um, and he said to me, you know, I, I was unaware and I believe him. I was unaware of what you're saying and, and the reasons for it. No, you know, you, you're not going to be blackballed from the game. And uh, that was a relief for me because I, I thought I might be, I thought I might be out. And then they ended up uh, right around that time, Cleveland started offering contracts, but the difference was they guaranteed them because what Jerry Reinsdorf was offering was not guaranteed. And it had two years that would kick in 
if you didn't get enough service time in. Think about that. So if you're on a bad team and it's a four-year deal, non-guaranteed, but two more years can be kicked in if you don't have enough service time, it's incentive for them to send you down. Yeah. So I fought it tooth and nail. And at one point, uh, Michael Weiner was the attorney for the association back then. And he called all the rookies in in a, in a hotel room and said, you know, if he fights this alone, it, it's not going to be good. Is, are any of you willing? Every rookie raised their hand. And when it came to uh, really going to war on this, every other one backed out. I think their agents got to him and said, let him fight it. If he wins, you all benefit. If he loses, you don't get hurt. Um, I, don't, I don't blame him. Um, it is what it is, but I, I just did it. <laughs> well, before we let you go, can I ask you about being there? Right before you left Chicago, you were there for the Steve Lyons uh, pulling his pants down incident in 1990 in Detroit. I got to ask you about that. I mean, what what do you remember? Yeah, I remember him. Get, he, he did a head first slide. He was always a max effort guy. I had a lot of fun with him. He's a fun guy. I really, I really did. I had a lot of fun with him. We did a lot of laughing. Um, and he went head first, hit the base, went past it, stood up, and he had sliding shorts on underneath. And he just ripped his pants down to get the dirt out. I think we've all done that to get it out of your belt. Uh -huh. but, I, but I don't remember ever dropping him down to my no. knees. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 it was on uh, the camera caught it. It was shown. It still gets shown on uh, blooper films uh, to this day. But, uh, yeah, he, he was a high effort guy. Good man. Yes, yeah, in Detroit. So let's see. Um, just, just pulling up the attendance. 14,770 people saw his sliding shorts that night. And I'm sure they were. Uh, That's a good crowd in Detroit. No worse for that it. Is, that is. You're right. Well, we gotta thank let you him so, go. Thanks so much for the time, Dave. Um, I'm sorry really if I good, yeah. if I monopolize the conversation, but I had a great time. I hope you did too. No, listen, guys. Uh, I wish I didn't have to hop off. I, um, but I hope that you'll invite me back on. I really enjoyed this. Definitely. I did too. Yeah, absolutely. We'll 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 get you back on. Great seeing all you. Right, take care, all these good talking right. to you. you See you, right. Dave Gallagher. And Greg Olson, I'm Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much yeah. for checking out that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. And we'll catch you next week. Peace. Yeah.